Well, we are beginning on the last month of the second trimester of the first year of a 10-year process towards spiritual maturity. We've been talking for three months about spiritual warfare. Uh, first, the dynamics of spiritual warfare. Second, the cultural strongholds. Third, how Satan tries to sabotage his relationship, sabotage relationships. And this month, we're going to be talking about what Satan does when he gets you alone. How he tries to get you alone, why he tries to get you alone. Now, <clears throat> I had two frustrations with this message. First of all, I just had one verse to preach from. That's just what came to me, and that's what I wanted to preach from. And I very seldom ever preach from one verse out of the Bible. Um, secondly, I found myself um, being tempted to dwell more on temptation and to dwell more on our isolation than to dwell on the victory of God, which is always a temptation when you speak, speak about spiritual warfare. There was a third frustration, though. I didn't feel like I was saying anything new. I don't feel um, that God is really communicating with me until, even though every message is about the simplicity of the gospel, until I am teaching you something you've never seen before or teaching you something I've never seen before. And so it dawned on me late Friday evening, very late Friday evening, that this particular verse was an example of a chiastic structure. This one verse was a perfect example of a chiastic structure. Now let me teach you about chiastic structure. All right, This is something that will help you interpret Scripture. The whole story of the Bible is a chiastic structure. We get the word uh, chiastic from the word chi, which is the Greek letter that resembles our X. It is a letter which has an intersection. It has an interruption. Okay? We get, the, you turn the cross on its side, it is a chi. And so therefore, all of the Bible can be seen as a chiastic structure. We come separated toward one event, one event that interrupts history, that makes it all different, and that is the event of the cross. After that event, everything leaves and scatters, never being the same again. Well, in Scripture, there is a grammatical structure that replicates that symmetry coming to that intervention and leaving differently. And this verse is a perfect example of that. And so in this verse, we have in microcosm the spiritual process of the story of God and people. Now, let me show you how we're going to do this. I'm going to divide it up to show you how this works. First, we're going to talk about no temptation has seized. Second, but such is in common demand. No temptation has seized you, but such is his common demand, and God is faithful. That's the subject. That's the intervention. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Those are the five steps. Now, let's go for the first one. This is where we get the sermon, uh, the title of this sermon. No temptation has seized you. You notice the isolation in those words. You notice the intimidation in those words, the provocation in those words. 
I like, I like the translation that uses the word seize. This, this is the word taken in a violent form. No temptation has taken you or overtaken you in a violent form. And that's exactly what temptation does in its essence. It tries to isolate us so that it can take us over. No matter how subtle, no matter how becoming some temptation is, in its end, it is a violent control of our lives. Let me give you other script, a couple of other scripture verses to try out with this. There's Genesis 4-7, where God is talking to Cain. And Cain is getting an attitude problem. Because Abel's sacrifice has been accepted, his hasn't. And God comes to Cain and says, Cain, why has your countenance fallen? If you do not do well, or if you do well, will you not also be accepted? And then he says, beware, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. See? Crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. And the word desire means its desire to control you. Its desire to make you a conquest. Its desire is for you. Don't let it master you. Now, just from that word picture, how many people can go through a door at one time usually? One person. Sin is crouching at the door. It is waiting to get you alone so that it can attack. 1 Peter 5.8 pictures sin as the devil, as a roaring lion going back and forth over the earth seeking someone to devour. So you get the word picture of sin. You realize why Satan wants to get you alone and make you feel alone. Because if he can make you feel alone, not only will you feel cut off from your strength, you will maintain that loneliness. You know why? Because shame pushes others away. When you feel bad about what you've done, there are very few people who run to embrace other people. Most people want to keep other people away because they're ashamed, see? And so if he can make you feel isolated, especially if he can make you feel weird, and not like everybody else, you will do your own isolation, not only toward people, but toward God. If we can be provoked and intimidated to remember only our fallen state and not to reach out, we will get angry with God. Let me tell you a cute story I heard a long time ago. I love this because it illustrates so perfectly where we are. There was a little boy who got a red wagon. He loved that little red wagon. But he lost it. You know, I got boys. I know that story. He lost it. He couldn't think of where that thing was. I don't know how you can lose a wagon, but he lost a wagon. His family were somewhat Christian. Kind of like being somewhat pregnant. I don't know how that works. But... His family had, had taught him, you know, when you get in a fix, you pray. And he didn't know very much about this prayer business, but he figured he'd better give it a try. So he ran up to his bedroom, and he started writing. He thought maybe it would be more authoritative if he wrote it down. And so he said, Dear Jesus, if you help me find my little red wagon, I will not fight with my sister for a week. Well, he looked at that, and he thought, I can't do that. I have always fought with my sister. I am powerless. 
not to fight with my sister. There's no way. So he crumpled it up and he threw away. Threw it away and he started all over again. Dear Jesus, if you if you help me find my little red wagon, I will mind everything my parents tell me and I will not resist them. And they looked at it and said, no, I th- that's not me either. I can't do that. I've never done that all my life. I've been, you know, I can't do that either. He wadded it up and he gets more and more frustrated about his own inability to bring anything to the bargaining table. And then he hits on an idea. Being somewhat Christian, they have some religious paraphernalia around the house. And he remembers that down in their den, there is a statue of the Virgin Mary. So he races down, grabs the statue, takes it back up to his room, hides it under his bed. And then he writes this. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... You see how we do. When we get frustrated, we try to get aggressive with God. We try to bargain with Him on our own power. We get angry with Him. See? And if Satan can provoke us with a feeling of being alone, that's exactly what will happen. But God calls us out of that. Now look at the second step. No temptation has seized you, but such as is common to man. All right? Now, if we get to the second step, if we can go out, if we can share with one another and realize we are not the only sinners in town. Everybody is a sinner. None of us have anything to offer. All of us are broken. None of our lives work right. And on and on and on. And if we can get to the stage of confessing to one another so that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, realizing we all need help, then that's a wonderful thing, see? That brings a certain release. That is another step. You know, in botanical terms, there are two ways of uh, uh, pollinization. One is that the pollen from a flower can literally fertilize itself. It's called selfing. And it works. It reproduces itself. However, the other way is by wind or by insect or by some other process to import pollen from another almost like plant and thereby to be fertilized by that almost like plant. Now, although the result may be the same, that is reproduction, the end result, the further result, is very different because a a plant that has been selfed, reproduced by, reproduced by self, is literally in an evolutionary cul-de-sac. Because if the environment changes very much, it will not be able to cope with that change. It does not have the differences imported to have the strength of a hybrid. However, if a plant is cross-pollinated, then when the environment changes, it will have more of a repertoire with which to cope with those changes. Now, we can go on as Lone Ranger Christians, but not for very long. Because when things get tough, you realize how lonely it is. 
It's only when we reach out. It's only that when we when we can confess to one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds that we really have the strength of a hybrid. All right? But even here, there is a danger. All of us love to look at ourselves or anybody like ourselves and not to go any higher than that. Let me tell you a story. When, when our kids were little, we just, when, when there were just two of them instead of three, we lived in Indiana, and we had gone to the grocery store one day, and Beck just ran in to, quote, get a few things, unquote, and it left the boys and I in the car together, and I had just gotten a pair of those mirror sunglasses. Remember those? We had the mirrors on the outside. And so I'm wearing these mirror sunglasses. It's a bright, sunny day. One of my kids crawls in front. And I won't tell you which one. If you know my kids, you'll know which one it is. Crawls in front, plops down on my lap, and says... Hey, Dad, neat sunglasses. Those are, those are mirrors. And he started going like this. <laughs> he totally forgot that I was behind those glasses. <laughs> For the next ten minutes, he was enveloped in his own image, never realizing for the, that for the entire ten minutes I was watching him through those glasses. <laughs> that is exactly what people do with God. We get so enveloped in our own image, we, forgot that God, we forget that God's the audience. He's right behind the glass. We see beyond a mirror dimly when we, look, when we worship God. But, not face to face. See, we, we've got to realize that it is our tendency always to be enamored with our own image. Well, what happens when we talk about reaching out and we talk about having fellowship? Does not fellowship cure our problem then? No, because we have the same tendency. And what happens is you go from Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 and regress to Genesis eleven seven. And in Genesis 11:7, you have a whole group of people who are united, who speak the same language, and who essentially want to build a tower that is a tribute to themselves. We will build a tower and make a name for who? Ourselves. And so even the breadth of the horizontal relationship becomes a religion in itself and lacks the cross-pollination that is transcendent. And they call it secular humanism. They call it the New Age movement. They call it a cult. They call it any man-made religion where man is at the center. Either his own existence, you know, well, I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's just keep being reincarnated over and over again until we all come out like we want to. Or his intelligence, I'll tell you where the answers to life are, they lay deep within you. You have all the answers of life. Boy, don't we love to hear that. Um, or they are an emphasis on our works. If you work hard enough, I tell you, boy, you'll just get to the kingdom and you'll be like God. See? All of those lack cross-pollinization. And so, therefore, the second level 
is never enough. Indeed, the subject of that verse is not no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. It's not the temptation, it's not you, it's not man. The subject is the next phrase, and God is faithful. That's the subject. That's the intervention. That's the center thing that changes everything. Now, let me show you, uh, I've shown you a small verse that is a chiastic structure. Let me show you a a larger uh, structure. If you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just start with verse 12. And let me pick out words and phrases from those sentences that show you how we are all coming to the event of the cross separately, alone, starting out very alone, and God is making a way for us to come to the cross, and we all leave from the cross very differently. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Look in the next verse, verse 13. You were formerly far off, but now you've been brought near. Look at verse 14. He broke down the barriers of the dividing wall. See, he's making a way for us to get there. Now in verse 15 becomes the cross. In himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. Now look at how we leave differently than when we came. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off or far away, and peace to those who were near. Verse 18. For through him we both have our access. You know, after we've been to the cross, we now have access to the cross. Verse 19. So though you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Verse 20. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See, we are being molded into one particular movement. Verse 21, being fitted together. Verse 22, into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see how different we are. The reason that we need that is because only when we come to Christ can we see exactly what God has for us and exactly what we have been. We cannot see what we have been when we live in the world. We begin to think that the world is reality. Do you remember when you were small and you were out playing close to dusk, hide-and-seek? And your mom would come to the door. My mom would come to the door, you know. And she'd say, Joey, got to come in. It's getting dark. And my first response was, dark? It's not dark. I can see fine. I can't believe she thinks it's getting dark, I tell my friends. She's getting really old. You know... She's got to be close to 40. I mean, she just can't see like we can. And we'd try to eke out five or ten more minutes, you know. And we could see each other coming down. I mean, it was okay. And then, Joey, I'm telling you, get in here. It's getting too dark to play. You're going to get hurt. Mom, I can see fine. Everybody can see fine. We've got no problems. And you'd squint, and you could pretty much make out who was who, you know, as it was getting darker. I mean, it really did look like you had plenty of light. Finally, she'd come to the door and say, Joel Hunter, you get in here right this minute. I was in. 
Because I knew she mean, meant business. I always had three times, you know. We had a system down. Had three times. Do you remember what happened? When you went into the light, and you just happened to turn around and look out the window, it was pitch black. You couldn't believe that just a few seconds ago, you thought it was light out there. What happened? Operating in that world of darkness, your pupils dilated to such a degree that you would let all forms of optical stimuli in in order to make out what you could, to have whatever clarity might be available. And you completed the picture in your mind as to what was really happening. But what was really happening in your mind is that you really thought you were living in the light. It was okay. It wasn't dark. When you hear people who live in the world say things like, Sure, I live with my girlfriend. That's no big deal. Everybody does that. God doesn't mind that. When you hear people say, Yeah, I lied in a business deal. But so what? Everybody does it. It's no big deal. You realize they're absolutely living according to the world standard. They have no idea how dark it is out there. Because they've never been in the light. Never lived in the light. That's why God makes such a tremendous difference. Because after you come into the kingdom, after you live with God in the light, you can see the darkness and how dark it really is. You can see how much of a domain of Satan it really was. You don't have to let everything in in order to make sense, and then it doesn't even give you a clear picture. You have a clear picture. In... in uh, Acts chapter 26, Jesus says this. I am sending you, he's talking to Saul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. There's a tremendous difference as you have experienced living in the light. And the darkness is real darkness from then on. Well, how are you different? All right? After you have come to Christ, after you have come to the cross and said, I want you to live in my life, how are you different? Okay? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, when you face a temptation, you are able. You see, before, according to Romans, sin was master over you. You had to obey it. You had no supernatural power. It was inevitable. You could resist it for a little time on your own strength. But if that sin was there long enough, you were deep into it. And Romans 6, 6 and 6, 14 says, because we have been crucified with Christ, sin is no longer master over us. We have a capability. It's not ours. It's Christ who lives in us that gives us that capability. But what a power we have now. 
Why then are there so many Christians who are still living deep in sin? Why are there so many Christians who think this Christian thing really doesn't work? Because they've never changed their mind about who they were. You know how they train, how they break elephants in Thailand? They chain them to a banyan tree, big, huge banyan tree. And then they watch the chain. And at first, that chain will stay taut because that, that elephant is struggling to get away. But eventually, the chain will be slack. Oh, it'll go taut every once in a while, but immediately it will grow slack as the elephant begins to understand that if there is tension, he is broken. He has no power. From that time, they can chain that elephant to a little stake that any elementary school-age kid could pull out of the ground. And as soon as he feels that tautness, he will, he will forget going anywhere because the resistance says to him, you are still in jail. He doesn't have a banyan tree on his leg anymore, but he still has a banyan tree in his mind. See? Christians are exactly the same way. You are a different person if Christ is living in your life. There is no sin that you are not able to cope with. There is no temptation that you are not able to overcome in the power of Christ. There is none. They are sticks to you. And if you don't overcome them, it's because you haven't changed your mind. Look at, look at just for a second, Romans 12. First two verses. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Most of us do that when we accept Christ. What we don't do is the second verse. And do not be conformed to the world. But be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see the process? Just to come to Christ and say, thank you for saving me, does not complete it. It's the renewing of the mind that is so important. Now one more point. And then we're going to go to the intersection. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now here's something very important to remember. Escape in the Scriptures. Escape in the Christian life is not equal with escape in the world. When you say the word escape in the world, what you essentially jump to the conclusion is you have eliminated the problem. It is no longer a threat. You have escaped it. It's not like that in Scripture. If it were like that, why would that end part of the sentence be there? In other words, why would God say, we'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it? 
If you've eliminated it, why do you still have to endure it? The problem doesn't go away. But the way of escape is the endurance by giving you something more, something bigger than that temptation ever was, so the temptation becomes the irritation of a fly instead of having the power of a lion in your life. It's not that you will not be tempted anymore. It's that what God is giving you to do is so much more powerful in a positive way than that temptation is in a negative way that it will not have the same effect. Let me show you a, a gospel, or I'm sorry, a, uh, uh, a Christ-like escape in the New Testament. Uh, Acts chapter 5. And I'll end with this. Acts chapter 5. If you want to see an escape that eliminated the problem but kept a vacuum, look at Luke chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. And you'll see that when the demons went out of the man, because there was nothing, he was totally clean, because there was nothing to replace it, though, nothing positive, they came back and were seven times worse. This is the type of escape that is listed for us in Scripture. Look at verse 20. They've been preaching... The Pharisees have gotten fed up with it. And so they go and they arrest them and they put them in jail. Now here comes the great escape brought by the angel. The angel stands there, but an angel of the Lord, let's look at verse 19. An angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go your way. That's a great, isn't it great? We're good, we're free. And then he, then he laid the rest of the sentence on him. Look at it. Stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Uh, pardon me? Uh, isn't that where we just came from? Isn't that how we got in here? Yeah. Yeah. But I want you to escape to that purpose. I want you to be used in that purpose. That was their escape. Well, they went out. They got brought in again. This time they said, they flogged him. They said, don't, don't you talk about Jesus anymore. And they went out. And the, the end of this chapter is this. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Had they eliminated the problem? No. Had they eliminated the fear? You bet they had. They were walking through it. They weren't... A, the temptation was not their master anymore. They were the master. They were preaching the master. You understand the difference? Let's go to the intersection. Lord, we come this morning from various points of loneliness. From feeling separated. From feeling weird. From feeling that no one really understands who we are. We ask you to do two things. We ask you to help us realize, as you bring us to yourself, that we are all weak, that none of us have anything to bring.
the bargaining table. That we all are failures. And so therefore, we are united, if only by our weakness. And then, Lord, as you come into our lives, literally with these elements, as you renew your first making your home in us, if you would send us out different, if you would send us out being renewed in our mind, if you would send us out clean and powerful, if you would send us from here, joyfully celebrating the fact that sin is no longer master over us, that you give us something more powerful, and that the way is the escape. We pray this in Jesus' name.